Support for WFIU News comes from the IU Alumni Association, now offering IU Proud, a member program designed for recent graduates and those facing economic hardship. More information at alumni.iu.edu join. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, along with co-host Lori McRobbie. Today we're going to talk about household debt in the United States and in Indiana and what residents should know. We have uh, three guests joining us. Uh, Phil Schumann is back with us. Phil was on a show recently about student debt, and he's back today to talk about household debt. Phil's Executive Director of Financial Wellness and Education at Indiana University. We have Kate Bolger, who's the Senior Director of Business Development for Money Management International. And Greg Geisler is joining us as well. He's a clinical professor specializing in taxes, financial planning, and personal finances for the Kelly School of Business. If you have questions or comments, you can send us email to news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at at Noon Edition. You can send us your questions there. You can also call us at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 877-285-9348. I think I'm going to start with a general question. I'm going to address it first to, to Greg and then Kate and then Phil about just the causes of the uh, increase in household debt. What, what's, the, what's behind all this? Well, COVID ended and everyone started spending again. Some people aren't as fully employed as they were pre-COVID. The great resignation also happened. Those are a couple of the reasons. Okay, Kate? Yeah, you know, what we found at Money Management International is that consumers during during the outbreak really use their credit cards to bridge the gap between their, their income and their expenses when their income was down. Um, and the real challenge has been that for a number of Americans, their income really hasn't been able to get back up to where it was, which is really only doubled by uh, the impact of inflation. And so consumers acquired this additional um, typically credit card debt is what we're seeing um, and are you know really haven't had an opportunity to start to pay it down. Um, and a lot of the consumers we're working with um, really have just been falling behind further and further month after month. Phil, is the story different for student debt? I mean, it's not really different for student debt. Student debt continues to be a thing. Households continue to have student debt. Students continue to go to school. And as long as that exists, there's going to continue to be that student debt piece. Um, so that's definitely contributing to the amount of debt a household has. And then, I mean, it's your look at like the big ticket purchase items like housing and cars at the moment. Like those are two things that continue to go up. Um, pretty high in terms of prices, and so that's contributing to how much people have to spend or how much people have to take out in debt, and so that's definitely contributing to it as well. Mm-hmm. How much is inflation going to affect this? And any of you can jump in first here. Greg, how about you? Sure, I'll jump in. Okay. I mean, the inflation rate's about 9%, and uh, wages are rising, but they're rising more like four percent on average so inflation is gonna take a serious toll and and lead to what was already mentioned uh by kate uh more consumer debt and that credit card debt is the stuff that kills you because the interest rate's so darn high exactly exactly we're seeing a lot of folks at mmi um, who are having higher grocery expenses than they were before Um, we're seeing utility expenses that are rising for people um and for homeowners, because the price of housing has been going up, 
their property taxes are increasing as well. Um, so it's a it really has consumers in a pickle right now. Um, and I think a lot of families are feeling that strain. I wanted to just uh, think we're talking about inflation a little bit here. Obviously, has an impact on this, and I'm. Um, remembering that we had extremely high inflation in, I want to say, the late 70s, early 80s. It was a, there was a recession and so forth, big part of the presidential campaign at that time. Do, can any of you speak to how this time might be the same or different, other than the rate of inflation? I mean, what, are, what, how, what factors might have contributed then that aren't present now? Or, and are there any lessons we can take from how that was addressed? I mean, one of, the, one of the things that I'll say that, that feels different, and granted, I, I should put a disclaimer out there, I was born in 1983, so I wasn't quite around at the time of, uh, of inflation. But one of the things that feels different or seems different at that time is, you know, you've got the Fed that continues to hike interest rates, but it's not slowing down inflation the way that it normally would or the way we thought we might still be a couple months out from that. But I think part of that is because there are so many people that have the means to be able to pay in cash and sort of forego the idea of having to pay for interest rates on, you know, again, like cars and homes and stuff like that, that it's not putting a lot of pressure on them, like the demand for them sort of continues to be there. And so, um, you know, companies can, can continue to have uh, high, higher prices because people will still buy it at those prices. That's hurting people on the lower end who don't have the income to be able to buy things. And so it's stretching them further into what Kate said earlier. Like, that's sort of when credit cards come in and sort of bridge that gap because that's the only way they can make ends meet at that point. Yeah, so debt was not uh, not we didn't see household debt in the same way back then. Perhaps that we're seeing it now. I mean, at least on my end, or at least the way I think about it, I don't think we saw household debt back then in the same way or going up the same way. But I also don't think we think about household debt in the same way now. Like we are very much so. Uh, a society that rel- I mean relies on debt to a certain extent right. in order to get us, you know, the things we want. Greg, Kate, do you have a response to that? Because I'm curious about about this as well. Because I was here, you know, during those times. I remember, you know, when mortgages were 14, 15 percent. But yep. you could also go down to the bank and get a, you know, get a some kind of a a savings bond for or whatever. I can't remember the name of the instrument, but for 16, 17 percent, you know, you get return on your investment. Yeah. Those those numbers think- are not the same right now, right? I think a big piece of the difference is that the um, proportionate to consumers' income, the cost of housing has has risen really sharply since the 70s. Um, so folks are spending, you know, having to spend more of their income on their mortgage, more of their income on their rent. Um, you know, I think auto loans are the same way. We've seen, you know, in, in respect to consumers' annual income, the cost of a car has gone up really drastically. And so we are more sensitive to smaller, um, you know, inflation and interest rate changes. You know, I also think we've had a, a, you know, a population here that have been under financial strain for a long, a long time. Um, You know, people have been carrying higher credit card debt than they are comfortable with for many, many years, as long as FMI has been in existence, more than 50 years now. you know, and so a lot of the work we do is helping folks understand what kind of budget changes they can make, being really thoughtful about those changes, and then working with their creditors. I, and I, I think that's an important part of the conversation too. You don't, you know, there there are a lot of options out there for folks who are dealing with consumer debt. Yeah, I would just add. I would just add that uh, it's not clear that the. Fed, uh, the Federal Reserve Board of the U.S. government raising short-term interest rates uh, significantly, as they've been doing recently, is going to solve the inflation problem. So far, there's no hint that it's going to solve the inflation problem. So we might have this problem for a while. Yeah, and it took, it, as, as I remember um, from that time uh, some years ago, it took some extremely um, uh, heavy-handed efforts on the part of the Fed to to bring inflation under control is very painful, uh, but it, but it worked. Um, I wonder. All of you are in the financial education business in one way or another, uh, and obviously here at IU we think a lot about um, students. Not I mean not just student loan debt, but uh, which we've discussed before, but but student debt in general. And I wonder if each of you could talk about 
kind of how you how you are talking to young people now about it and what kinds of trends you're seeing. And any uh, Phil, why don't you test? Why don't you start? I mean, yeah, uh, one of the trends we're seeing is sort of interesting. Is you know we've talked about student debt for a long time. The office that I run, um, our program, IU Money Smarts, we've been doing that for the last ten years. And the reason why it got started at the beginning was really to focus on student debt levels and help try and figure out how we can better educate students to lower the uh, lower their costs, lower the amount of debt that they're taking out. What's an interesting trend that sort of came out of that is number one, we've seen great declines in, in terms of the number, uh, the amount of student debt that students have taken out. I think we're down now 23 percent, 155 million, I think is the number. That's been over the last decade. But what's interesting is that out of that, there's a subset of the population where. Um, a lot of students aren't taking out debt because of debt aversion, um, which is interesting, which is sort of counter to all of this. But basically, you've got students who are so afraid of student loan debt and household debt that what they're choosing to do is work more hours in order to try and get their college degree. But it's sort of a short-term thought for you know for that's going to create long-term problems because they're not able to make that amount of money in order to pay off their tuition. And so one of the trends we're seeing overall is just. Students are more mindful of debt. They're also more scared of it, um, which can be a good thing. But it also we're trying to like level the playing field with them and help them understand. You know, it's not necessarily borrowing that's the issue. It's over borrowing. It's not borrowing efficiently that's uh, or efficiently that is the problem. And so we're trying to help you know navigate that and having like healthy debt habits and having those conversations with students. The other end that I will say too is that a lot of students are very, very hyper-focused on credit scores, just because of all the advertisements that uh, are get fed to them. And what they don't understand, because you know the credit system or the credit score system is a numeric system, it looks like a game. It's you know the higher the score, the better things are. And that's not quite how it works. And they also uh, see it as being like an indicator of financial health, which it's also not. It's an indicator of borrowing health. And really, at the end of the day, it's more of a tool for those who are going to lend than it is for the person who's going to be, uh, be um, you know, receiving the money. Interesting. Kate or, Kate or Greg? You know, when we look at folks who have student loan debt, um, right now it works out to about one in four of the folks that we're working with have, have some amount of student loan debt that's in forbearance today. Um, the real challenge that they have is that first they just don't have the budget to restart making those payments. Um, folks are already, like I said before, stretched very thin. Um, even folks who aren't stretched very thin, you know, when you haven't had to pay a debt for a long time, your spending tends to start to float up. And so we're very concerned about payment shock as, as loans come back into repayment. Um, but also folks just don't know enough information about how student loan forgiveness is going to work. And we're pretty concerned about that. Folks don't realize that there's going to be an application that you need to fill out. They don't realize that it doesn't uh, cover all student loan debt. There's some debts that are that are exempt and don't get forgiven. Um, and so we're, we're concerned about the lack of education and, and really working to get the word out there so folks understand what's coming. NPR actually had a story this morning on the National uh, Morning Edition about uh, people are getting lots and lots of calls from various sources, voices saying, oh, you, you need to check in with our office about, you know, before you can learn more about or whatever. And, and the, I think the conclusion was these are all scam calls. Right. Is that mm. Phil? Yeah. 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 I mean, actually, the Biden administration put out a little bit of a notice. Uh, I can't remember what day it was this week, but they did say that people need to be aware of the, the scammers. And, and, and sort of to the point of all oh, this, too, like we did the show, you know, however many weeks ago it was, uh, four or six weeks, something like that. And just the amount of like that show is now outdated. Um, just with the amount of information that's changed over the course of time. So we're saying here, like, you know, say Kate said, like, repayments are getting ready to start. We think, right? Like, and we think people are going to qualify for loan forgiveness, right? Like, we're not sure exactly what is going to happen, which is sort of scary in all of this because we can't give anybody any certain information about what's going to happen with loan forgiveness. We think we know. But anything could change. I mean, we could look over the TV monitors right now and see that something has changed at this point. 
We have three very knowledgeable people talking to us today about household debt and debt issues. So if you have a question or a comment, you can phone us at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. You can also send your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org or on Twitter at Noon Edition. Greg Geisler from the Kelly School of Business. Can you give us sort of a, a primer on you know, how to tell if you, have, if you have too much debt? I mean, debt is not necessarily, it's not a bad thing to have some debt if you're going to be a, a consumer, I don't think. You can tell me if I'm wrong. Um, but how much is too much? Greg? I apologize. I lost your feed for a second. Um, yeah. How much is too much? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. the uh, my concern is students who want to go to their dream college, and it's going to turn out to be their lifetime financial nightmare. Um, dream college needs to be tempered by what college can you afford? What major are you going to choose? What's the lifetime earnings for someone in that major? Um, I just ran an analysis for an article I'm going to write for the Journal of Financial Planning. And if you go from 50,000 of debt to over a little over 100,000 of student loan debt, and, and it's based on the figures that I chose, but that reduces your long-term wealth by about a third. Okay. Now, again, that's specific to the figures I chose, but people don't realize what a nightmare student loan debt is, particularly if it's not federally subsidized interest. And I hate to hear my dream school is this, and I look at it and it's 50,000 or for out-of-state student, it, it's 50, 75,000 or it's a private school, 75,000. Don't go there. Don't go to your dream school. Your, your dreams are going to come true if you don't go there. Uh, it's just way too expensive. Student loan debt is way too accessible. And it, and it turns out to, an, to be a nightmare, both for the student and often for their parents who take out high interest rate loans also. Let, let me expand this just a, a bit and ask you about people that want to buy their dream house. Is it a similar scenario? It is a similar scenario. If you cannot afford your dream house. Now, the, the, the one difference is usually mortgage lenders won't let you buy your dream house if it's way too expensive. In contrast, you can get uh, student loans for pretty much as much as you want. There's the nightmare. Mm -hmm. uh, I Kate, think mortgages you? Are, okay. are even more complicated than that. Um, because even though the lenders do have a limit of how much of your gross income they'll allow the monthly mortgage payment to be, that for for most folks is more than they actually are comfortable spending on their mortgage every month. And so it's really important if you're looking for a home, if you're considering refinance, to figure out what kind of payment you want and then work from there to figure out how much you can borrow. Um, you know, most folks that we work with have never made a monthly budget, have never, you know, written down how much they have in their income, written down all their expenses, and then done the math to see, to see how that works out. Um, and so I, I strongly encourage folks to do that, um, you know, but, but again, as you're looking at a house, really thinking about payment first and where that's comfortable is the most important part. If you have an uncomfortable payment, that is going to be an uncomfortable living situation for as long as you have that home and nobody really wants that. Great point, Kate. Completely agree. Um, the other thing that people often focus too much on is what's my monthly payment? You also want to look at what's my annual interest rate. And I'm talking about all debts. Um, if, if you overfocus on my monthly payment and then your budget might tell you, oh, I can do that. Well, if the interest rate's 15% uh, or 25%, or like on some credit cards, you don't want to be giving away that much of your wealth, making a credit card company rich and you making yourself poor. And, and that's really, I, I think, in the auto industry, with auto loans, I think that's become a big piece because, like, you know, we, we look back, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago, like, the I don't know, the average auto loan, we'll say, is somewhere like five years or, you know, four or five years or whatever. 
Now you look around and you see auto lenders are like, we'll let you borrow this car, less monthly payment, but it's going to last for eight years or you know seven, eight years. And you're running the risk at that point, and we have seen this, where like that car isn't going to be operable after those seven or eight years, and all of a sudden you have to go through the entire process again, and you're still paying off that car, and so it's getting wrapped up into the next auto loan you're taking out. So yeah, they, I, you don't want to just focus on what the monthly payment's going to be, because in a lot of cases it's just going to involve stretching out the life of that loan, which is not necessarily a great decision. So all of you are in the, as I mentioned before, in the financial education business, so I think I know how you're going to answer this question, but I'd be interested in talking about how much of this, the kind of root problem is that we don't talk about money enough. Uh, it, people are reluctant to talk about what they make, what they spend in general. And uh, probably a lot of parents are, are you know, whether they, they think they are or not, maybe guilty of not, not talking enough about money and not, and so therefore not uh, engaging in some of those educational conversations. And I'm, I'm assuming you're all seeing that in one form or another. Uh, I wonder how we how we get ourselves more comfortable talking about money and how we increase our interest in financial education. And, and any of you can can respond. I mean, I'll, I'll chime in here real quick. Like the stat that we've always used, or not necessarily the stat, but the thing we have seen is that like families would rather talk to their kids about sex than they would money. Like for some reason, like that's a taboo that still hasn't been overcome yet, um, and that remains true to this day. Um, you know, it, it does. Families do need to have conversations with their kids about money. Like they need to know how much they make as a household because they can understand then what does that amount of money buy. Um, one of the things I like too, and we have a, a colleague in our office who just started. Um, she came here from New York University, and she said now the state of New York is requiring employers to put how much the salary is going to be in the job description. I think we need to start doing that at a national level as well, because that's going to help people understand, you know, what they can afford or whether or not these jobs are things they should be pursuing, because they need to have an understanding of what that's going to be able to buy them should they be able to get that job. I, I think that's a start, but I'm guessing Kate and Greg will also say like, there's a lot more we can do too. <laughs> sure, <laughs> absolutely. You know, people we hear people all the time who say, um, "I'm a good person." Um, but but I suddenly just couldn't pay my bills as if being a good person and your ability to pay your bills are somehow related and they absolutely aren't good people struggle with you know financial security and struggle with making their bills and some you know bad people just you know pay things on time right like it, it has nothing to do with each other um, and shame is the number one reason that we see like the number one barrier to folks reaching out for help and so for us really the first step that we would encourage folks to do is engage with an organization like ours, right? Find someone who does financial education, find someone who does financial counseling and have, you know, have that be your start. But um, people are absolutely, they're terrified to talk about money. They would, they would rather do almost anything else. Um, and the really sad thing is that means that people end up in a worse situation than they need to because they were too afraid to talk to someone about what they were going through. So they'll stay in a bad situation and keep making decisions that aren't in their best interest because they they're too afraid to reach out for help. It's too they're too ashamed. Kate, I think that that might be the the first answer to my next question. And my <laughs> next question is, you know, we had maybe two years ago, people or four years ago before the pandemic, people were feeling like, okay, I've got this thing. You know, everything's good. I'm making what I need to make to pay my bills on time. And then the pandemic hit, and then all these factors started happening. And now they're looking at their financial situation saying, uh-oh, I'm in some difficulty here. What can, you know, what can they do? I mean, they're not students that are just starting out getting some education. They've been, they've been working in the system for 10, 15, 20, 25 years, and now all of a sudden, the rules have changed or their situation has changed. What can, what can they do? You know, I think the first step that, you know, as a, you know, someone coming from a financial counseling agency is to get with a one-on-one -on -one financial counselor or get with a one-on-one -on -one educator. Um, you know, they're experts who know how to walk through your budget, who can help educate you mm -hmm. on what your options are. Um, you know, but but reaching out for help really is the first thing that they should do. Um, and, and I would encourage people to reach out as soon as things start to get uncomfortable and not wait until things start to feel like an emergency. 
an emergency, right? You don't want your debt keeping you up at night. Um, in part because it, you know nobody nobody needs to live that way, right? Um, but also in part because you have a lot more options when things are just uncomfortable than you do when they're reaching a real financial crisis. And and on that reaching out for help, I think that that in itself could be an intimidating thing for some folks too. Where do they turn to? What, who do they trust? And we talked about you know scams and so forth. Um, any of you want to um, maybe give our audience some pointers on on where to go for help? I mean, are there are there good reference books they might try first that would give them a little leg up? Um, are there things to look for in a financial plan uh, planner, a financial um, advisor? Yeah, one idea is uh, if, you know, I'll kind of divide people into two camps. One is there, uh, have the wherewithal to uh, uh, pay for a certified financial planner. And that's my recommendation go to a certified financial planner if you do have the wherewithal to pay um, they have a fiduciary obligation they have to do what's in your best interest instead of just trying to sell you something that's good for their commissions and the other thought is if you break people into those who cannot afford um, paying for any kind of service uh, one thing i'm familiar quite familiar with is uh volunteer income tax assistance. So if you need help doing your tax return, as soon as we get to January, start Googling local volunteer income tax assistance or VITA for short, V-I-T-A, and have have that get done on time and get done free. You might have to wait a while. Uh, you have to bring all the information they need, including your social security cards and things like that. But it's a way to help you stay on track financially. I mean, some people who get in desperate straits, they do things like don't file their tax return. And then, of course, in the long run, that just makes things worse. We have a question that uh, our producer has forwarded to me about pandemic relief. He said, uh, we're wondering if were people relying too much uh, on the pandemic relief money given out during that time that and that's contributed to overspending and debt. I mean, so that's uh, go ahead, Kate. I say that's not what we saw in looking at folks' budget during the pandemic. What we saw is people really using that um, pandemic relief to pay for groceries and and to try and you know really keep their family where they were. Right, pay for their rent or mortgage, pay for utilities, um, you know, pay for prescription medication, because the folks who were who we're working with at least we're using it to pay for the difference between their income and their expenses just trying to you know keep keep things together there um, what we saw long term is that folks that we worked with um, use that money if they had excess they used it to pay off big existing debts so if they had medical collections they used it to pay that off if they were behind on their auto loan they used that to catch back up on their auto loan um, you know, and unfortunately, what we're seeing is since that relief has started to, to end, is that those, you know, delinquent auto loan instances of delinquent auto loans, instances of delinquent medical debt, those things are starting to tick back up, um, which is, is really challenging and a, a tough thing to, to recover from. Yeah, I I wanted to follow up on on medical debt because that's we've we you know we've talked a lot about um, homes and and cars and edu you know college education. Um, medical debt, of course, has been you know a long long time issue uh, in this country. So it's interesting to hear you say that 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 those are going up too. Is that when we think about the components of debt? Um, I, I don't know if it, Greg perhaps uh, could speak to you know relatively speaking. Uh, Cars, homes, um, uh, student loans, medical debt. What what kind of ratios are we talking about? Is it is most of the household debt uh, taken up by let's say uh, mortgage le mortgage debt, or is it more something else? Yeah, and, and I'll let Phil add in after I make a comment. The, if you look at the uh, 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 national averages. Um, it's student loan debts that have been going up by far at the fastest rate uh, compared to any other debts. Um, and uh, I think mortgage debt is the largest overall, but it, it's 
even with the huge increase in housing prices very recently, um, it, it has not been ticking up over the last 10, 15 years, the way student loan debts have been drastically rising. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would agree with that. I think the, the interesting thing about medical debt, um, you know, medical debt is, in a lot of cases, surprising, right? Like, you're not, a, in the case of mortgage, in the case of auto loans, in the case of student loans, like, you expect to have those things because you signed up for it. You don't necessarily sign up for your injury or whatever happened to you. Um, and, you know, to what Kate said earlier, sort of talking about the idea of shame. Like, there are people who are in unfortunate circumstances, not because of the choices they made, but because of the things that happened to them. And I will say, there are, you know, financial personalities out in the world who do tend to have a pretty hardline stance as it relates to debt. Um, and say, like, debt is bad, debt is not a thing you should have, which, yeah, none of us here are saying, like, anybody should have a lot of debt. But in the case of people who have medical debt, you know, it's not necessarily their fault. They didn't do that. And for us to, you know, for an attitude to come out and say, like, you should feel bad about having this debt, that is preventing part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, medical debt not, might not necessarily be like the thing that's, you know, um, that balloons over student debt or credit cards or anything along those lines, but it's certainly a thing that can prevent people from getting back on their feet because they just don't have the ability to pay that off when something unfortunate happens. Yeah, let, let me ask, uh, you know, debt, we're talking about debt being necessary in some cases, and, and as you just said, Phil, medical debt is one thing that people can't control. But I also think, I mean, if somebody wants to buy a house or if somebody wants to buy a new car, it's rare that somebody has that kind of cash lying around that they can just go out and buy something new. So, you know, there's the fact that some debt is, um, you know, reasonable is, is you know, something that I guess I want to say. But there is this uh, emotional cost of carrying too much debt. And I guess I want to know about sort of pivoting a little bit to talk about that emotional cost when you, you when you can't pay your debts. And, you know, any of you can can jump in, but. Yeah, I, you know, I would say, I think the emotional cost is uh, kind of a bigger hurdle for folks than just that financial cost. Um, it keeps people awake at night. It lowers your job productivity because you're thinking about it. Um, you know, it affects your family relationships, your friends. It, it really seeps into everything. It's incredibly stressful for folks. Um, and again, it's it's really unfortunate because it's not necessary. It doesn't have to be that way. And what we find is that once folks have a plan for how to deal with their debt, once they really had the chance to, you know, look at their budget, understand their options, um, and make a plan, that stress really starts to evaporate very quickly. I'm not saying the road to getting rid of excess debt is easy by any stretch. It's a, a tough road for a lot of folks. But just having a plan, having you know a, a strategy gives you an ability to see that light at the end of the tunnel and makes things much, much easier. Yeah, and certainly people have debt like, you know, multiple credit cards and a car mm-hmm. loan and a this and a that. There are, are I believe there are, uh, mechanisms to consolidate that debt is that that's part of what you're talking about, right, Kate? Yeah, absolutely. We have something called a, a debt management plan, and it basically um, we have relationships with all of the major creditors and um, have negotiated so that consumers that work with us get a lower interest rate. They typically get lower payments. Um, you know, in general, consumers end up saving about 21 percentage points on their interest when they're working with our debt management plan. They end up saving about. Um, 25 years in payments. So most of the folks we're working with are just paying the minimum. The debt management plan allows people to get ahead because of those concessions that creditors are making. Um, They're typically debt-free in about four years and save uh, about $36,000 of interest when they work with us. Mm -hmm. Wow. I was going to add for people who aren't in a debt crisis, getting back to uh, Bob's earlier Mm -hmm. point, Get a car loan that's four years instead of seven or eight years. Get, get a mortgage that's 15 years instead of 30 years. And, and that automatically forces you to not overspend, not over invest in housing. Um, and, you know, what happens after four years? Oh, the car's still working. Oh, I don't have to buy a new one. Oh, I don't, I, and I don't have this monthly payment anymore. Oh, maybe I can save more. Um, 
Same idea with a 15-year loan instead of a 20, 30-year loan is, wow, you mean I could be no longer having making mortgage payments when I'm retired because I got a 15-year loan instead of 30? That's wonderful. Um, so, so again, it's back to what's the interest rate, how long's the term, and, and then you get into, can I fit it into my monthly budget? I want to follow up on that with you, Greg, if I if I could, and just ask about, you know, this is not necessarily about debt, although with some retirees there still is debt. But one of the things that's happening in this economy and with inflation is that people had, you know, let's just say a million dollars one day and then lost 20% of it in the next month. And they believed that they were going to be in a very comfortable situation for retirement. They could still pay off the whatever you know mortgage they still had left and and be just fine. What kind of you know what what should they do now that it appears that they've lost a good deal of their nest egg? So the stock market's gone down twenty percent like you're like you're saying, Bob. And uh, the question is when do they need that money? Do they need it in the next couple of years or do they need it twenty or thirty years from now? And again, we're talking about a, a retiree. So the the only lever left to push is cutting spending in some way. Again, we're talking about someone who's saved for retirement, they had a million dollars, now it's down to eight hundred thousand. Unfortunately, we don't know where the stock market's going tomorrow or next year or the next five or 10 years. But the only thing left to do is is consider spending, given that your nest egg is, is smaller and uh, it's, it's discretionary spending in particular and, and having fewer fixed monthly obligations. That's again where not having the mortgage payment anymore because you paid it off in 15 instead of 30 years uh, becomes huge for, for retirees. Mm-hmm. If you have a question for us, we still have about 15 minutes to go, so you could give us a call, 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 877-285-9348. You can also send us your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. I, uh, thinking about this issue of talking about retirement and, and so forth is for young people who are you know post-college years, let's say, coming out of college, but but with some student loan debt and they go into a career, to a, a job at an organization that has retirement plans, but you know, the employee has to pay in to those often in some cases, many cases perhaps, the employer will match those contributions. But they're sitting there looking at money to put into retirement, money to pay down student debt. Um, there's probably not one answer to what they should do. But, but if you get asked that question, Phil, for example, yeah. What do you say? Yeah, so I'll say two things. Um, Number one, this is the best part of my job in a way where I can sort of say what you said. Like, oh, it just depends on your personal situation because there's never like there's never a right answer with this, and so I can, like, I you know, I I don't have to come up with the correct answer for it. Um, But the other thing, and and Kate and Greg may know this. I I don't know what the status of it right now, but there was actually legislation that was talked about where if um, an employee or an employer could match a retirement contribution based on whether or not the student was uh, paying off some student debt at that time. So if you know if the match is 5%, student is putting, you know, at least 5% towards paying off student loans, the employer could match it at that point. That was a like if if that passed again, I don't remember what the status of that is now, but if that came to it came to pass, like that's a really big benefit at that point. Um as that's a, still that still has a decent chance of passing uh, yeah. later this year. Okay, because I mean that 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 would be a big piece. That, that, that I think that sort of answers the question. Yeah. If that does get passed, otherwise, it does sort of boil down to it, it, like the way we would look at it is just what's causing you the most financial stress. Um, certainly, we would want uh, an employee if they're able to to meet that match because you get two dollars for the price of one dollar, which is fantastic. And from a mathematical perspective, the chances are, you know, this is not financial advice or whatever, but from a mathematical perspective more than likely you're going to get a rate of return that's probably going to be higher than what the interest rate associated with your student loans are. But if the student loans are what's causing you more stress, if that's the thing that's keeping you up at night, then I would tell you that's probably where you want to place your focus. If you're worried about not being able to retire, as you said, like a young graduate in like 40 years or whatever, then I would say focus on that a little more. 
Um, that's sort of the personal nature of all of this. Is is you know we can do the mathematical game, happy to do that. But from us, from a psychological perspective, from a mental health standpoint, the question for us comes down to you know what is keep, which of these is keeping you up more, uh, more at night. That's a great point. The psychological versus the uh, economic, and the economics, uh, as Phil uh, hinted towards, say. Whatever you do when you're a full-time employee, get the maximum employer 401k or 403b or 457 match, depending upon what kind of employer you work for, a nonprofit or a government organization or a business, get the maximum match because that's free money your employer's dangling in front of you if you put uh, uh, enough into your uh, retirement account through your employer. That, that's what the economics say. But like Phil said, I, I mean, so, some interest rates on loans are, and Phil, Kay can maybe speak to this better, are, are 8 9%. And uh, that that's that's a very high, relatively high interest rate. It's not as bad as credit cards, but that's relatively high. And, and if you are getting the maximum employer match, th- then probably the next thing you want to do is uh, focus on a plan to, to pay those down and pay those off. And you know, Go ahead. I think it's I think it's important too. Um, it doesn't have to be an all or nothing with it, right? You know, if your employee matches up to five percent, you can put four percent into your four hundred one k, and then use the other one percent of your income to pay down student loans. You know, to pay extra towards your student loans. Um, but I would, uh, you know, I would say, if it is the choice between either making any student loan payment at all or contributing to retirement. Um, you know, I think making that student loan payment, you know, staying on top of that, not falling behind is uh, incredibly important. I would that's the direction I would encourage folks to go. We've had a couple of things. Completely come, agree. A couple of things have come in through our producer. One is, um, you know, we don't want to advertise for anybody, but we did have a, a caller that, that is singing the praises of Dave Ramsey as a person who um, helped her. So, I mean, we know he's a national figure and as a national program. Um, another is a question about um, credit card education. You just mentioned credit card credit card rates are interest rates are very high. And you know our question is, is there enough credit card education? Do people understand what they're getting into when they get a credit card? I, I, I they don't. don't. <laughs> yeah. say, no. There, there's certainly not enough credit card education to combat the credit card marketing. There you go. Right. Okay. And, and so let me follow up on that and say, I mean, how? what are sort of normal credit card rates now? And is there, you know, what, how did they get that high? 20 to 30 percent. Oh. Wow. Yeah. The average credit card rate that we're seeing now is over 28 percent. For the folks that we serve wow and it's, it's incredibly crushing and the challenge here is if someone you know if your your you know debt is like a credit card debt in particular is like a power tool right um it can be incredibly effective it can help you get stuff done but if it's misused then it can be um you know it can do incredible amounts of damage um, and and that's exactly what this is if folks are paying off their credit card balance every month um if folks are being really strategic about what they use credit for that can be, uh, you know, then, then credit cards can be wonderful and your interest rate doesn't quite matter as much if you're not carrying a balance. But if people find themselves with, you know, a high um, balance that they can't pay off every month, if they're only able to make that minimum payment, that's when credit cards really become dangerous. Um, and when we really encourage people to seek out help for that. Phil, how much do you talk about that with students? I mean, we talk a lot about credit cards with students. I mean, we're, we're sort of the foundation, like, because we have, you can almost say, like, we have two classifications of students. We have students who have credit cards and really are just using them, and we try and make sure they're using them responsibly. And then we have students who are deathly afraid of credit cards because they've heard of all the pitfalls, the 28% interest rate. Um, you know, th- this is the hard part because, you know, credit cards and, and credit in general are, uh, like, it's tough because in both cases, they're sort of an important tool that's going to help build you up. 
But in order to get involved with it, you have to pay a pretty significant cost in the form of higher interest rates and a pretty big penalty if you're unable to meet that. You know, and you, and you take this out from like a, um, I, I guess you could take it from an inequality standpoint too. Like you've got families who don't have access to credit that's preventing them from being able to access things that would make their lives better. Um, and we haven't quite figured out how to fix all of that. I took that in a very different direction with it, but I mean, these are the conversations we're having um, to help people understand. Like, this is why these things are both good and not so good. Mm-hmm. I have one more question that um, our producer has sent to me uh, that we talked about, and it's um, for Kate. It's about Project Porchlight because. That's a, a project where you know you're working with people after disasters who are having huge financial challenges, and you know with with climate change and more natural disasters, it appears that this is going to be a more important part of the world of of controlling um, you know our own financial f- future going forward. Can you address Project Portlight? Yeah, Portlight, yeah, absolutely. So Project Portlight is. Um, a financial recovery program for folks who've been impacted by disasters. And so, um, you know, if you are lucky enough to have never been through a disaster, then I hope it stays that way. But recovering from a disaster is incredibly difficult. It is expensive. Insurance is a bear to work with um, and work through if you've never done that before. Um, There are tons of forms. There's, you know, you're really kind of taking the test before you receive the lesson when it comes to disaster recovery. Um, So the typical person Um, kind of middle-income person who's impacted by a disaster, on average, their credit score drops about 25 points in the year following a disaster. Project Porchlight is designed to help people through all those financial pieces. So we help people work with um, FEMA. We help people through SBA, disaster recovery loans. We help people understand their options, really make a plan to protect their finances as they're recovering and to recover really quickly. Um, And so people who work with Project Porchlight, um, in the first year, they're their credit score does not fall. They, they maintain the same credit score they had before the disaster. And the years following the disaster, their credit score raises 25 points over the next three years, which is a big improvement for folks. Um, you know, it's, it's incredibly effective if you've been, um, you or your, your loved ones have been impacted by a disaster, please, um, you know, reach out. It's a totally free service and it's, it's available nationwide. When you talk about disasters, I and mean, we've just gone through a, a horrible hurricane in South Florida. Mm-hmm. You know, we're in Indiana. We have tornadoes every year <laughs> that come through here. Yeah. Are you talking about natural disasters in particular, or could there be you know, fires, things like that, too? Yeah, b- both, both. Both natural disasters and human-caused disasters. Um, so we help folks who are victims of wildfires that were you know, started by people doing things they shouldn't have. Um, you know, we help folks who've been impacted by hurricanes. We've helped folks from earthquakes, um, from wind events, tornadoes. Um, really, if if there's a disaster out there, we've helped someone recover from it. So, it, it, just to clarify, so things like a, a sudden catastrophic medical um, issue might do you help with those as well? So we do. That wouldn't fall under Project Porchlight specifically, but we absolutely help people yes, who right. have a catastrophic medical issue. So we still you know, can help them through forms, can help them understand what their options are. Um, you know, Project Porchlight was designed really to help folks when they've been through a disaster that has some kind of infrastructure impact, right? Because disasters really take away all of the things that sort of buttress your life, right? It takes away your neighbors, your faith organization, your school from your kids, it takes away your job. Like it is devastating and super traumatic. Um, but that's not to say that other financial disasters aren't also incredibly traumatic. And so we help out really with any kind of financial challenge that someone's facing. We can help. We've come to the uh, the end, near the end of our program, but we still have enough time that I'd like, you know, we're, we've been talking about, about household debt and the problems that it causes and some of the solutions. But I want to give each of you, you know, a, a minute here in our last three minutes to just you know, say anything you haven't said or offer any advice that, that you want to make sure that people hear. And Phil, you're in the studio. I'll, we'll go to you first. Okay. Um, I, I wrote down three bullet points, actually, that I, that I thought I might close out with. Number one, um, to something Greg said earlier about the volunteers and tax assistance and stuff like that, here in Bloomington, so if you're a community member here, the volunteers and tax assistance that's run out of the law school at IU, 
Um, so feel free to reach out to them. They provide a great service there. The United Way here in Moreau County also does a similar thing through their Financial Stability Alliance. They have a lot of services. Um, so please contact them if you're having any issues and, and want to get some assistance in those ways. Um, the second thing I would say is if you're an employer, um, you know, something we said earlier was that like, you know, a lot of people don't have access to free resources and stuff like that. There are becoming more employers who are signing up for like financial wellness benefits for their employees. I have a colleague um, who runs his own company where basically employers can sign up with them and all of their employees have access to free one-on-one -on -one sessions with a financial professional um, as well as consent emails, all of that kind of stuff at a financial education platform on the end. That is a great way to provide service and also add benefit to your company. So I would highly encourage you to research that if you have the ability to do that in your capacity. And then the final thing, and I said this earlier, was just like debt is okay. Like it, it's okay if you have debt to not talk about it would be sort of you know is the issue and it could be a, uh, you know something we, that can be solved. So I would tell anybody who has debt and is stressed about it, find a colleague, find somebody you know, find a friend, find a financial professional, whatever. Just start having those conversations to, to, as Kate said earlier, like help you see that light at the end of the tunnel. Kate, go ahead. Yeah. So, you know, if there's one thing I can impart on folks, it's that you, you should be comfortable in your financial life. You deserve that. Um, and if you're not comfortable, if you are worried about your finances, if you're struggling to make ends meet, you know, if, if it's keeping you up at night, there are people out there that can help. Groups like Money Management International, nonprofit financial counseling agencies, are available everywhere. There are local ones, there are ones nationwide like ours, um, and they can help. We, you know, we, we have a ton of tools available and counselors are incredibly experienced in doing this work. Um, you know, we really believe that everyone deserves an affordable life. All right, Greg Geisler, you have the last minute. Thank you. Fund a Roth IRA with part of your paycheck, even if it's a small amount each paycheck. How do you do that? You know, just set it up with Schwab or Vanguard or Fidelity. Why? Well, people get in credit card debt because they don't have any money to meet emergencies. The car breaks down. They, they, they owe $2,000 to get it fixed. Now they got $2,000 of credit card debt they never had. A Roth IRA is the only account where you can pull the money out that you put in tax-free and penalty-free. Now. Uh, so that's the only tax advantaged account you can do that with. Um, you just take it out whenever you want to meet your emergency. Now, the only caveat is let's say you put $1,000 in and it goes up to $1,300 cause you invest it. Uh, don't take out the 300 of earnings, but you can take out the first thousand you put in tax free, penalty free. So again, to meet an emergency, start building up a Roth IRA instead of an emergency account, because trust me, you won't touch that until an emergency shows up. All right, we are out of time. I wanna thank, that was Greg Geisler from the Kelly School of Business at IU. Also Kate Bolger from Money Management International and Phil Schumann, Executive Director of Financial Wellness and Education at Indiana University. Um, for Lori McRobbie, my co-host, and producers Benta Boutier, Kathy Knapp, and Nathan Moore, also, engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Zalzberg. Thanks for listening. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com.